Good morning, church. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 9. I'll just point out that hymn that we just sang was the only hymn that we know is attributed to John Calvin. And regardless of what you think of John Calvin or what we call Calvinism, you notice that fourth line, no harshness hast thou and no bitterness. Uh, the, the great uh, warmth of the gospel as it comes to us in the Reformation. The Reformation which was not something invented, something new, but a recovery of the gospel that God had been preaching to His people since Exodus, since Genesis, since the dawn of time and through the New Testament. It is the good news of the reconciling power of God in Jesus Christ, and we celebrate it today, even in the study of the eighth plague, <clears throat> the plague of locusts. I'm so relieved from the children's uh, survey here that we just had that when we get to the plague of darkness that only half the children will be afraid. <clears throat> Exodus chapter 9 is what we're studying this morning from, I mean Exodus chapter 10 verses 1 to 20, uh, the plague of locusts. And remind you, we've been studying through the book of Exodus chapter by chapter this book of God's uh, deliverance of His people from the oppressive enslavement of Pharaoh, the Pharaohs, for 430 years. And we're told in the New Testament that it was Jesus who was leading the people out. And the promise comes that He will lead them out. The warning comes to Pharaoh that if he does not obey, he will punish him, and he has done so now for these eight times. This is a passage we've seen God's sovereignty over and over again, but maybe today you are freshly questioning the justice of God. You look at this world, you watch the news, you think about what's happened in your own life, even either in the recent uh, past or the distant past, and you ask, is there a God of justice? Or will systemic evil and this perpetual evil, will it overtake me? Will it possess this world forever? And this word, this plague even, is good news for those who find their refuge in Jesus Christ. It's bad news if you continue to try to produce your own refuge, but it is good news for Christians. With the anticipation of seeing it, let's begin in verse 1 of Exodus chapter 10. <clears throat> The Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants, that I may show these signs of mine among them, and, they, and that you may tell in the hearing of your son and your grandson how I have dealt harshly with the Egyptians and what signs I have done among them, that you may know that I am the Lord." So Moses and Aaron went into Pharaoh and said to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, how long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Let my people go that they may serve me. For if you refuse to let my people go, behold, tomorrow I will bring locusts into your country. And they shall cover the face of the land so that no one can see the land. And they shall eat what is left to you after the hail. 
and they shall eat every tree of yours that grows in the field, and they shall fill your houses and the houses of all your servants and of all the Egyptians, as neither your fathers nor your grandfathers have seen from the day they came on earth to this day. Then he turned and went out from Pharaoh. Then Pharaoh's servants said to him, How long shall this man be a snare to us? Let the men go, that they may serve the Lord their God. Do you not yet understand that Egypt is ruined? So Moses and Aaron were brought back to Pharaoh, and he said to them, Go serve the Lord your God. But which ones are to go? Moses said, We will go with our young and our old. We will go with our sons and daughters, with our flocks and herds, for we must hold a feast to the Lord. But he said to them, The Lord be with you if I ever let you and your little ones go. Look, you have some evil purpose in mind. No, go, the men among you, and serve the Lord, for that is what you're asking. And they were driven out from Pharaoh's presence. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the land of Egypt for the locusts, so that they may come upon the land of Egypt and eat every plant in the land, all that the hail has left. So Moses stretched out his staff over the land of Egypt, and the Lord brought an east wind upon the land all that day and all that night. When it was morning, the east wind had brought the locusts. The locusts came up over all the land of Egypt and settled on the whole country of Egypt, such a dense swarm of locusts as had never been before, nor ever will be again. They covered the face of the whole land so that the land was darkened, and they ate all the plants in the land and all the fruit of the trees that the hail had left. Not a green thing remained, neither tree nor plant of the field through all the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh hastily called Moses and Aaron and said, I have sinned against the Lord your God and against you. Now therefore forgive my sin, please, only this once, and plead with the Lord your God only to remove this death from me. So Moses went out from Pharaoh and pleaded with the Lord. And the Lord turned the wind into a very strong west wind, which lifted the locusts and drove them into the Red Sea. Not a single locust was left in all the country of Egypt, but the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people of Israel go. Brothers and sisters, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, please open our eyes by means of the Holy Spirit. Cause us to see your redemption in this story and your redemption in our lives and your redemption yet to come in the great judgment day. We pray it in your strong name, in the name of Jesus Christ and all God's people said together, amen. In C.S. Lewis's children's series, The Chronicles of Narnia, that have been turned into movies now, there is a... The Lord Jesus is, is uh, imagined to be a great lion, a lion named Aslan, a great formidable lion. And Christians in the, in the tale, in the series, are imagined to be children, four of them, two boys, two girls. Jill, one of the little girls, separated from the others, is walking along and 
after a long day of her pilgrimage, is thirsty. She hears a rippling stream and she runs toward it. But just before she gets to it, she sees that there is a, a gigantic lion on the other side. She starts at it. She pulls back and, and uh, he says to her, are you thirsty? She says, I'm about to die of thirst. Well, then drink, he says. Well, would you, could you, uh, would, would you just leave? He growled. As growled as if she had asked for a mountain to be moved from one place to another. He did not move. I will not move. Well, uh, do you eat, little girls? I have eaten girls and boys and houses and lands, men and women and kings and emperors and cities and realms. Do you promise not to eat me? I make no promise. Then I dare not drink, she said. Then you will die. I'll just find another stream. There are no other streams. There are no other streams. You will die unless you eat of this drink of this stream. There is no other source of life. He is the image of King Jesus, the just one, the judge, Jesus, who says, if you come to me, you will have life. If you stay away, there is only death. If you stay away, there's only death. But if you come to me, even to me, as the great judge of the universe, there will be life. That's what this passage is about. The judge who brings justice, which is sovereign, which is, which is satisfying, which is saving to those who look for it in Christ, terrifying for those who don't. The sovereignty of God is revealed in each of, these, in each of these plagues, no less in this one. We've seen it many times before, but here it's especially intense, especially as the passage begins and ends with this word that God hardened the heart of Pharaoh. God hardened the heart of Pharaoh and God brought the locust when Pharaoh refused to repent. God demonstrates His sovereignty over history by turning, and, and over creation, by turning the, the west wind to an east wind, by bringing locusts to Egypt in a way they had never been seen before, experienced before, or ever since. He demonstrates His sovereignty over creation. Once again, remember, each of these, God is revealing Himself to be a God who is superior to all the gods of Egypt. The, the, the God they trusted in for the Nile, the God they trusted in for fertility, the God they trusted in to prevent epidemics, all of those gods have failed. And then God mercifully spares their, 
their food-producing crops, crops of wheat and spelt. He mercifully preserves them from the, the plague of hail. And now apparently Pharaoh thinks I have at least a God who protects our food source. I have gods for that. Archaeologists have even discovered uh, a manuscript or a steel, an inscription, a sacred inscription that praises the God of the crops. Their beautiful fields preserved by the God's of their crops. It's unfortunate for the Egyptians and for Pharaoh that God can read. That he could read that manuscript that gives his glory, assigns his glory to false gods. And God says, though I spared your food producing crops, I will not spare them now. And he sends an army of locusts. Locust plagues were feared almost above all other disasters. Augustine in the fourth century described a, a locust plague that not only devastated all the crops, but when the carcasses of the, of the locusts piled up and the seas washed them up on the sea, it created such a contamination, 800,000 people died. 1915, a plague of locusts swept across Palestine and Syria, destroying 400 to 16, 600 acres uh, 400 to 600 feet per day. 1960, California experienced a plague of locusts and lost 200,000 acres. Even in the 1980s, the late 1980s, because of the Civil War in Chad and insecticides couldn't be sprayed, a plague of locusts swept across North Africa, decimating its crops, leaving its people desperate. Terrifying. God sent it on Pharaoh. Pharaoh, we've never seen so desperate as he is here, crying out to God, crying out to Moses to cry out to God. God demonstrates his sovereignty over history and over creation. He demonstrates his sovereignty once again over human hearts. The passage opens and closes this inclusio, this Hebrew form, a poetic form that says this is the main point of the story, that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. We spent a whole sermon on that topic. We won't rehearse most of it, but remember we said that, that the Pharaohs of the time, the Egyptians thought that as long as the Pharaoh's heart was supple, it was, it had, it was divinely powerful and controlled history, and controlled people. But when it was hardened, it was dead. And that, that divine heart was passed on to his successor. God is saying by hardening his heart now, you not only had no power as you thought you did, I'm proving that you have no power because I'm making you as good as dead. And furthermore, he's giving him over to the judgment that he has chosen. He is releasing his hand, taking back his hand, allowing Pharaoh to reap what he has sown, to get what he wanted. He is releasing him to pursue the evil that he has chosen. It's in God's hand. It's in God's hand to turn our hearts from that which they naturally choose. And it's possible even when a king hardens his heart. We read about Nebuchadnezzar in the book of Daniel who hardened his heart too. Uh, but God had mercy on him and turned him. In this case, God chooses not to. It's an appropriate time to utter a warning to you. 
you who are refusing to give your lives to Christ. Those of you who hear the call of the gospel today and you say, I'll get to that tomorrow. I'll get to that in a decade. I'll get to that when I reach certain goals. There's no guarantee that you will. There's no guarantee that you'll live that long. There's no guarantee that God will ever call you again. It's not your choice, the timing. If God is moving in your heart today, you see your need for Him then today is the day of salvation and there's no guarantee that there's another moment for you. God is sovereign over history, over creation, over your heart. Today is the day to respond. If God has conquered your heart, then you take comfort in the fact that He is a sovereign God of justice. That the heart of the king is in his hand, that no matter what evils this king or present rulers or anyone else or any system in our world exercises, no matter what evils they produce, God is sovereign over them. And the day is coming when you must know that you, if you're in Christ, will be satisfied by the display of God's justice. That's the point of verses 7 through 17, this very thorough judgment on Pharaoh, this arrogant man who has been warned now 10 times, if you just let us go, you'll be spared. And, uh, and he's turned his heart these 10 times. And here, once again, even after he prays for mercy and he's relieved from it. He says, I'm only going to let the men go, not the rest. This arrogant doer of evil. He knows that if he lets the men go, if he keeps their their wives and their children, it'll force them to return and he can keep them enslaved. What hope is there for justice against a man who cherishes evil in his heart like this man or works evil like this and people like this who still exist in our world or systems like this that cannot be rid from our world. What hope is there? There is this hope for those who are in Christ. The day is coming when Jesus will bring his justice in such a way that it will satisfy us that right has been done. I don't mean in a voyeuristic way. I don't mean in an indulgent way in a self-righteous way, but I mean in a way by which you say, now I know that the God of all the earth has done right. Theologian of the past, Meredith Klein, had a, <clears throat> a phrase for this kind of occurrence, this kind of, this, this, these plagues like this, or, or the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, or the, or the killing of Herod in Acts chapter 12. He called it intrusion ethics. And the idea is that that in order for God to keep his people encouraged through redemptive history, he's not just telling them, justice is coming. I will punish the wicked. You will be set free. You will be vindicated. He at times takes aspects of that judgment that are yet future and he visits them in the present. So his people can say, yes, you are a God of justice. You can look around you at times and see that justice displayed just however momentarily in this world. And you may know by it that God 
It's a God of justice, judgment for a Christian, for one who is in Christ, one who has said, take my sin on yourself and give me your righteousness, hide me in your cross. Judgment, therefore, is something to be welcomed by the Christian. Because judgment has, your judgment has fallen on Christ. And what remains is judgment to fall on systems and people who remain unbowed. Theologian N.T. Wright says this about the way a Christian should view judgment. The word judgment carries negative overtones for a good many people in our liberal and post-liberal world. But we need to remind ourselves that throughout the Bible, God's coming judgment is a good thing. It is something to be celebrated, longed for, yearned over. It causes people to shout for joy and the trees of the field to clap their hands. In a world of systemic injustice, bullying, violence, arrogance, and oppression, the thought that there might come a day when the wicked are firmly put in their place and the poor and the weak are given their due is the best news there can be. Faced with a world in rebellion, a world full of exploitation and wickedness, a good God must be a God of judgment. You know, I want to say this, make this point of the satisfaction of God's justice, especially for those of you who have peculiarly been abused and victimized by evil, the evil of a, another human being, another, uh, uh, the, the evil of a, of, of a system, the evil of the invasion of death in our world, whatever it is. And you tend to think, you come to church and you say, church is never quite for me. Or maybe you've been in a worship tradition which is, which is glib, which is, which is only happy songs and, and only happy verses and only inspirational themes. And you, you seem to get a steady diet of chicken soup for the soul. And you say, it just doesn't meet where I am. It just doesn't reach me because I have experienced evil. And I can't just pretend that it's not there. I can't just glibly paste over it. I, I can't paper over it. I can't just say I'm going to forgive and then go on my, go trippingly on my way. You need to know the day is coming when Jesus will gather up all of those ills and all of those evils in a way that is very satisfying to those made in the image of God and, and, and united to Jesus Christ, in a way that satisfies His perfect and absolutely holy standards, He will judge. Simon Wiesenthal gives us a very disturbing image in his book, The Sunflower, on the possibilities and limits of forgiveness. Simon Wiesenthal survived the Holocaust and in the height of the war, 1943, he and a group of his fellow Jews were gathered up in Limburg concentration camp and taken to a hospital for SS soldiers, and they were, they were forced to clean up the refuse. 
And one day he was summoned by one of the nurses to the, to the bedside of one of the soldiers who was dying. He was bandaged from his wounds. He was, there were all of the evidences of death in this man's body, and he was trembling with fear. He grabbed Wiesenthal's arm, and for hours he, he gave the biography of his life, beginning with his his joining the Hitler Youth and then joining the Nazi Army and then the SS and then and Wiesenthal tried to wriggle his way away. He just couldn't take it anymore. He tried to, to leave, but he, he held on to him and forced him to listen. You must listen to every word. You must listen to every word. He concluded with the horrific story of gathering up 300 Jews, setting the house on fire, jumping out of the upper stories and then shooting them all. And he said, he grabbed onto Wiesenthal's arm, his name was Seidel, and Seidel said, I cannot die in peace unless a Jew says, I forgive you. He didn't apologize, he didn't confess that the whole movement was evil. He didn't take any action against the movement. He didn't uh, express his regret for what had happened to the whole race. He just wants to die in peace. He's very much like this Pharaoh. Just relieve me of my discomfort. Wiesenthal looks out at the sunlit courtyard and back at the man's decaying body and the terrors of his soul. And he gets up and he walks out, never says a word. For the rest of his life, he questioned whether he'd done the right thing or not. He invited uh, thinkers from all around the world and from all faiths to, to, to contribute to his book, and, and upwards of 50 have done so thus far. And those who mentored him, those closest to him, said, it was not your place to forgive. Only God can forgive that crime. And that man was not looking to God, he was looking to you, very much like Pharaoh looking to Moses, not to God. The point is not whether or not that man could be forgiven. There were actually a, a number of Hitler's henchmen who came to Christ even on death row in Nuremberg by means of a Lutheran chaplain named Garricky. It's not that God cannot forgive those who turn to Him the image I give you from Simon, from Simon Wiesenthal's walking away is the image that will appear, that will occur at the great day as people who finally, people, unrepentant people, arrogant people, systemically evil forces appear before the judgment seat of Christ and suddenly they're aware that they're wrong and He is right and they're desperately looking for a way out and God says nothing and lets them fall into the fires of hell. The book of Revelation said that hell itself will be consumed in hell. Every force, every wrongdoer, every abuser, every evil system will be judged and judged very satisfyingly and at least at that day, you will say, God has heard my complaint, and He has done right.
But if you're honest, you must admit that all the wages of sin is death. And in your pastor's heart and in your heart are all the seeds of evil too. And even if we have not committed crimes against humanity like this SS officer, gossip and abuse earn death. Whether adultery is in the heart or in the flesh, whether a lie is white or black or any other form, Whatever the sin, the wages of sin is death. And so who of us could stand before Him on our own? So the call that came to Pharaoh, the call that came to him ten times, ultimately twelve times by, its, by the time it's over, that call to repent, that call to believe, that call to humble oneself comes to everyone. It comes to all of humanity. I think the, the, the Bible says since the creation, the eternal attributes of God, his, the, the, the invisible attributes of God, His eternal power and His magnificent strength his, have been revealed in the creation together until now, so that no one is without excuse. Or elsewhere it says, you have been given life and breath and everything else so that you may seek Him. You say, I don't, I don't know after studying this text, I don't know if I'm elect or not. Or you say, after hearing you today, Pastor, I don't know if my sins can be forgiven. Or you say, I don't know if my heart is too hard, maybe it's too late for me. Do you, do you know that the Bible says none of that is any of your business? It's not your place to judge whether your sin can be forgiven or not. It's not your place to judge whether or not you're elect. It's not your place to know whether or not your heart has been absolutely hardened. Your place is only to believe the promises which are absolute in the gospel. Call on the name of the Lord and you will be saved. Believe on the Lord, name of the Lord and you will be saved. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you shall be saved. He who comes to me, I will in no way turn away. You believe? You call out to Jesus today and you'll prove that you're elect. You'll prove that your heart has not been hardened. You'll prove. You'll prove that He's the Savior. Call on him as some of these Egyptians did. Did you notice that in the last text that we studied? Those who feared God, those of the Egyptians who feared God, obeyed Moses' warning to hide the cattle and the slaves. You say, I don't know if I have enough faith to believe. I don't know if I can let go of my sin. I don't know if I can repent. Of course you can't. That's why God must convert you. That's why we started with that sovereignty of God over the heart. It's good news. You'll say, where is conversion in this passage? I want you to, to 
look at it here very carefully. Follow me. Now, I want you to know we're learning to study the Old Testament as, as, as we go along too. And one way we study the Old Testament, we don't look at the Old Testament and say, I wonder what this reminds me of. I wonder what I can compare this to. I wonder what kind of allegory I can make of this. No, we, we listen very carefully and observe the patterns and themes of the Old Testament, and we trace them through the Bible, and we find redemptive, we, we find redemptive messages. And, and so here, here's, here's the way we, we're supposed to look at some of these details God it tells us that he, or the word tells us he sent an east wind. It was blowing west. He made it turn to east. An east wind in the Bible is frequently associated with judgment. God turns the wind, sovereignly turns it, and it blows eastward. It never comes out of the east. It's coming now, and it's bringing with it locusts. Not hard to figure out. That's a sign of judgment. And, and then he cries for mercy. And God does what? He converts the wind. He turns the wind from east to west. And in converting the wind, turning it, He blows that which was bringing judgment into the Red Sea, the locusts. God brought the wind of judgment. When they cried out for mercy, He turned the wind and blew it away, and it brought salvation. Now, Jesus had an interesting conversation with Nicodemus in John chapter 3. And uh, he had been talking about judgment early on in, in chapter 3, and then, and then he comes to Nicodemus, Nicodemus says, I, how can I be found in the kingdom of God? And uh, Jesus says, Nicodemus is a, is a smart man. He's a, a theological a teacher, and, and he says, uh, you must be born again, Nicodemus. And Nicodemus takes him literally, and he says, how can I enter again into my mother's womb? Jesus says, in fact, you, you're missing the point. I'm speaking spiritually, not a physical rebirth. I'm saying that the only way you can enter into the kingdom of God is to be reborn, is to be born again by the Spirit. And the Spirit is like a wind that blows where it will. The Spirit is like the wind. It blows where it will. The Spirit, brings, the Spirit brings conversion. The only way you can be saved is for the Spirit to bring faith to you, join you to Christ, and grant you repentance. God is making that point vividly in this passage. And He offers that good news to you. Whatever the locusts are, Whatever the locust plague is in your life, whether it's on the inside, whether it's on the outside, Jesus says, turn to me. My Spirit will grant you faith to cling to me. My Spirit will grant you repentance to turn around, to convert you, cause you to walk on the side of justice. We'll talk a lot about Martin Luther on Reformation Day. A lot of problems with Luther. Luther preached the gospel. And then in his own life, we know very embarrassing, very scandalous things about his personal life. God makes it clear in the revelation of history that he was not the Christ, but he preached the Christ. 
just as He reveals to you, you're not the Christ. You embrace the Christ. Luther tried to save himself. Luther tried desperately to reform himself by mastering theology, by mastering the Bible, by mastering confession, by, by punishing himself, punishing himself with perfectionism. Finally, in desperation, he thought he would make a pilgrimage to Rome and that would, that would absolve him and his family of many years in purgatory. He, he was told that if he made his way to Rome and to St. John Lateran Church in particular, some of you have been to that church, and, and you've seen what he visited, the, the Scala Sancta, the sacred stairs. They're supposed to be the stairs from, from um, Caiaphas' house that Jesus went up uh, during his trial. And, and it, it was uh, prescribed that if you drag yourself up and down those steps on your hands and knees, enough times you can absolve yourself of years of judgment and, and uh, purgatory. And so Luther finally made his way to those stairs, and he was dragging himself up and down that he had already heard, he had already looked in the Bible, and he had seen Paul say, the justified will live by his faith. The one who's going to be righteous is the one who will receive the gift of righteousness by faith alone. He's, he's, he's wrestling with that even while he's still trying to earn his own salvation. So he joins the pilgrims, and he drags himself up and down, up and down. Supposedly, the stains of Christ's blood are there, and you've kissed them. You can absolve yourselves of many sins, many years of judgment, up and down, up and down. His son, many years later, writing about that story in his father's life, said, Luther was wrestling in his conscience, and he heard on the one hand, by fear, said Luther. By faith, says Paul. No, by fear you will be saved, says the, said the scholastics. No, by faith, said the whole of the Scriptures. By fear, said the other pilgrims on the steps. By faith, says God the Father. And at that Luther's son said, my father stood up and walked down the stairs and back to Wittenberg with the just shall live by faith on his lips to the rest of his life. By God's glory alone, according to His Word alone, he says he saves by grace alone, through faith alone. And he saves you not just once, but moment by moment by moment until the great and glorious day when all, including you and me, will be made right. Let's pray together. Oh, Lord, some of my brothers and sisters are so discouraged with themselves, are so defeated by those in their lives who have beaten them down, are so disheartened by the evils they encounter around their world. They're so discouraged. They find it hard to look up. But would you, 
Put your hand beneath their chin and lift up their eyes to look on you. Some have never looked at you before. Would this be the day of salvation? Would this be the day of their adoption when they called you Abba, Father? And for all the rest, may it be a day of victorious encouragement. Yes, even while they're lamenting, may they do so with a strong and unconquerable hope. We pray it in Jesus' name and for His sake, and God's people said together, amen.